Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Carlos, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Always trying to make geothermal bigger. We need terawatt sources, so geothermal is one of the very few ones that can make it. Happy to tell you about it today. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you mind giving us kind of a brief bio and you know how you got interested in geothermal as technology? Yeah, so I am a mechanical engineer. I am from Colombia originally, and I came to MIT as an undergrad master's student. Um, when I finished that, I went to work for the oil industry. Uh, I worked for Schlumberger. They are one of the largest companies uh, providing technology for oil and gas, and not, not quite the oil and gas companies themselves, but the companies who provide the technologies for them. So I was always very technical, very, very close to what it takes to, to develop technology, to, to, to do one of the largest human activities in history, right? Exploiting oil. Uh, fast forward 15 years, so I've traveled all over the world, worked in many, many large teams all over the world, and um, I was increasingly seeing the need, um, personally, uh, to, to transition energy. Of course, it's obvious, every, you know, we need to transition energy, but, you know, I was running the numbers like a good engineer and trying to see what can actually transition energy away from fossil fuels, what, what can actually replace the terawatt of energy we take for granted around the world. And geothermal and nuclear were one of the very few options that could actually do it. <clears throat> Long story short, decided to leave the company, decided to learn venture capital, decided to fund this company when I uh, found out some of the ideas from MIT, which we'll be talking about today, and started the journey with Quake. So, so really, a person that's been close to energy, very technical, having an understanding of what it takes to transition energy, taking a liking for one of the two, in my opinion, options that can actually transition energy. That's great. That's great. And I like geothermal because it seems to solve a lot of the challenges. You know, people talk a lot about solar, but you can't use solar when the sun doesn't shine. You know, wind doesn't work when the wind's not blowing. Um, nuclear sounds like a good option. But, you know, why, why geothermal, uh, geothermal over nuclear? You know, what was your thought process there? And of course, there are like some really yeah, big regulatory so, problems with nuclear. Seems to be the real deal. It's like it's just disallowed from being done. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So my thought process actually starts at a higher level than that. You know, you know, those are human-imposed things, and we can solve them. We can set our minds to it. But physics are physics, and physics will only let you do so much, right? So it really starts with that. So let me take you through that. So when you look at the world runs on 20 terawatts of energy. Forget if that's fossil or nuclear or wind or so. It doesn't matter. That's what it that's takes. What it takes to run our civilization today. 20 terawatts. That means 20 trillion joules per second, every second of every day. 25 years ago, it was half of that. It was 10. 50 years ago, it was 5. 20 years in the future, it's going to be double. It's been doubling every 25 years. And that's just a result of population growth and the things we as humans do. You know, we discover new things that we can do with energy and we do them. 
so, so we're talking about trying to transition into a future world where we'll need at least 40 terawatts to run the world. Now, we want all of that to be clean, carbon-free, because we have an issue with global warming. Everybody is starting to accept that fairly mainstream. So what does it take or what does the world look like at 40 terawatts? And where can that come from? You look at primary energy sources. Where can it come from? And again, I'm not talking about whether it's electricity or hydrogen or, or, or it's fuel X versus fuel Y. We're talking about where does the energy come from? There's only three places where it can come from. Fossil fuels is qualified. Nuclear fuels, and there's a few of them. There's thorium, there's plutonium, there's uranium, there's hydrogen as a fusion nuclear source. And renewables, we solar, geothermal, hydro, um, tidal, all of those. But there's really three big buckets. What does the, can, can they do 40 terawatts? When you look at the physics, of doing 40 terawatts, you realize that only nuclear and in the renewables, only geothermal can actually do it. None of the other renewables can. It's just a physical limit. If we were to do 40 terawatts of solar, we run out of land. You know, we have Gosh, equally not, not enough. Not an option. I mean, we can scale solar big time, but at 40 terawatts, we're not even close to getting there. The same goes for wind. Geothermal is the only one, right? So. It's really between nuclear and geothermal. So then nuclear, what are they, right? Fission, geopolitically, geopolitically very, very, very difficult. You know, very difficult. We've had it for a while now, and it's, it's really not scaling because it's very difficult geopolitically for good reasons. And fusion, fusion is amazing. We need to be a fusion civilization eventually, but fusion is going to take a while, right? Even if we have fusion tomorrow, the people, the millions of workers, that it will be required to scale fusion worldwide, haven't been born, right? So to me, it's a solution for the second half of this century. So that leaves you with one and only one option. Geothermal, of course, I'm biased, but that was my thought process. That's I, I think that's a that's a a great analysis, and I, I've never had heard it put like that. I think that's a very smart way to think about it. We're breaking down how much energy do we actually need, and you know where's that going, and what sources can actually meet that need in a real way. Uh, what are what are the big challenges with with geothermal? Is it like drilling technology? What's the what's the big key piece right now that we're kind of missing that prevents it from being from being uh, a mainstream source we can use? Yeah, it's it's getting to it right. So we cannot quite get to geothermal energy at the scale and the power densities that we need. So we know it's there. There's zero uncertainty about that. We know that. Uh, we know it's always there. It's always <laughs> flowing, right? So it's really, the question is about getting to it and tapping it uh, at the depth that's required to actually start a geothermal industry, a terawatt-level geothermal industry. That's, in my opinion, that's the only thing. You know, in order, in order to get to a new frontier and open it up, you need to get to the new frontier first. If you want to colonize the moon, you have to get to the moon, period. If you want to colonize Mars, you have to get to Mars. If you want to make geothermal terawatts, you have to get to it. You have to get to that terawatt source. So I say that it's drilling and only drilling. Of course, the minute it happens, the entire, you know, humanity, you know, very smart people will come and start to knock out the problem. Because it's not the only thing you need, but it is the one gaping item that you need 
for geothermal to actually become anything believable. Gotcha. That that makes sense. We you have to get to it, and and that that opens the door for us to solve the rest of the challenges. I, I I'm curious. Uh, I know a, just a very very high level about you know ultra deep drilling. I know there's a, a couple different technologies. There's like rotary drilling. There's like millimeter wave drilling, impact drilling. You know what are the challenges with these, and, and what's the best approach you guys have found so far to solve some of these challenges? I don't want you to give away anything proprietary, but like in general terms. No, no, yeah, yeah, no, glad to. So again, very high level. So. So drilling has been around for a very long time. Consider this, you know, 99.999% of the resources of the planet are on the surface or below the surface. You know, that means oil and gas, that means heat, that means water, that means mineral, that means everything we as humans need to run our civilization. So drilling has always been a big, important part of human history and human progression, right? So, so mechanical drilling, for many, many reasons, has always been the most developed one. You know, we are, we start with, uh, let's talk about the 20th century. So we start doing rotor drilling. We start doing a mechanical rotor drilling to get into oil and gas uh, research. Uh, before that, we were doing it for water. Uh, maybe it wasn't quite as sophisticated. So those are basically systems where you are putting energy from the surface, you know, because we're not going to go in the hole. Nobody's going to go in the hole. Right. We're going to have to move things from the surface. And somehow that energy is going to go over there and crush and grind the rock. And we continue to remove the material, normally with a fluid, a mud, a liquid, and it comes out of the hole and we keep making a deeper hole. So mechanical drilling is very well established. It goes back thousands of years, you know, but for oil and gas, it's really developed tremendously over the last 100. So that's one. I'll come back to why that's not enough for geothermal. So variations of mechanical drilling you have hammer drilling, you know, like a percussion hammer. You're basically rotating and heating the rock at the same time. It's basically doing two mechanical motions at once. Uh, it works really well for hard rock. But again, I'm going to talk about why that's not the answer for geothermal either. Then you get into novel stuff, you know, drilling with lasers, drilling with water jets, drilling with um, uh, projectiles, drilling with uh, plasma, drilling with... Um, electric shocks, drilling with millimeter waves, drilling with microwaves. All of these things have always been fascinating to humans to do because we're always looking for a better way to do it. Now, let's talk about very deep and hot drilling. So you have to do two things to drill deep and hot. The first one is you have to be able, this is going to sound incredibly simple, but this is it. You have to get the energy from the surface to the bottom. As simple as that. <laughs> when, you're rotating, when you're rotating a pipe, from the surface, you know, you're going to lose energy as you go down because that pipe is bending, rotating, there's fluid right. friction. By the time you get to five, six, seven, ten 10 kilometers, you're barely scraping the rock. So that's going to be a losing proposition as you go deeper and deeper. So that's Second like, one, that's like your, your car, yeah. if, you know, if you've got uh, a longer car, if you've got a rear-wheel drive car, you've got drivetrain loss with horsepower. It's the same exact thing. It's just like on <laughs> a huge scale. That's a good that's, that's a good analogy. Yes, you, you're not going to be able to get the, the torque from the motor to the back wheels if those back wheels are a kilometer, a mile away, right? right. It's just not mechanically possible. So, so the second one is you, this, again, very obvious, you need to get the material out of the hole, period, right? If you're not getting the material out of the hole, you're not making a hole. So, so how do we do that? Well, we crush it into small pieces and we float. We suspend it in a mud and we flow that mud fast enough to actually carry in the same way that a river carries pebbles you know if it's if it's flowing really fast the pebbles move 
If it's not, the bevels sink. So that's how we do it. Now, as we go deeper and deeper and deeper, um, though you have to carry those particles for longer distances, right. and you have a hell of a time trying to pop those muds, which are usually dense, you know, gooey, to those distances. So your pumping power starts to grow exponentially with depth. And by the time you're in 10 kilometers plus, you know, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly high. So that's just physics, right? Now, what are we doing that's different? Let's find a really, really, really efficient way to get a lot of energy from the surface to the bottom. How do we do that? In the same way that you and I are talking about now, through a fiber optic and a laser that's carrying information, we do that at a much higher power and not lasers, but masers, all right? So a lot of people don't know these, but masers are microwave amplification to simulate emission of radiation, just like lasers, it's microwaves. So the millimeter wave travels through the pipe over very long distances, very efficiently. So that's number oh, cool. one. That's physical, physical change number one. You know, no longer rotating anything, beam the energy through the pipe. You can get a megawatt to the bottom, even if it's 10, 20 kilometers down. And then, because you're vaporizing the rock, the particles that condense back are actually like volcanic ash. They're very fine. You can, they're so fine that you can actually flow them back with air, with nitrogen or air, oh, cool. and that, that greatly diminishes the, uh, the physics envelope just opens up greatly, right? On top of that, you layer other things like cost to drill, you know, how expensive is it, but those right. are the consequences of opportunity costs and market dynamics, and we can talk about those too, but from a physical, I mean, to me, it's always, does the physics let you do it? Yes, so move forward. If it doesn't, don't even bother, right? because right. you're not going to get there no matter how you try Exactly. It's a hard kind of technical uh, challenge. Glenn, do you have any questions about that? So I really like the idea of movement of particles using air instead of water. And I think there's an angle that people aren't realizing for this. Um, when you're talking about really big height differences, um, potential energy becomes really influential. So one half MGH, mass times gravity and times height. So think about this. At the very bottom of the ocean, you have, you know, an Eiffel Tower of water above you, and that's crushing down on you. That's what causes the pressure at the bottom of the ocean. Now, when you're doing drilling, I'm sure that's the same thing. Imagine if the water weighed a quarter as much, you would have way less pressure. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But it's interesting that the engineering difference is you need much smaller particles to be able to move them using air instead of water. So, and I guess that's a viscosity effect, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the physics, uh, you, you, the terminal velocity is really the concept here and it depends on viscosity, but it also depends on the relative densities of the, the fluid. Uh, in the end is, I mean, to, to, to the common experience, you can understand that if you have, you know, a bunch of marbles, versus a bunch of flour, the same mass, and you blow on them, the flour dissipates in the air and the marbles barely move. So it has to do with the density and, and the ability of the fluid to actually displace and carry the, the, the particles away. The smaller they are, the easier they are to carry away with less dense fluid, uh, which in this case is air, right? So that, that is the concept that's at work there. Just, just to say how important that is, um, our parents are friends with a, patrol, a former petroleum engineer, 
And um, I told him that I was taking my uh, mechanical engineering license exam soon. And he said, oh, do you know uh, the pressure change for a cubic or for like a foot distance in, in water? And I said, I have no idea. But it's something he could just tell me off the top of his head because it's so important to understand you have to pump mud down so that you can you can move the material out of the hole and so i thought that was very interesting that he, he it was so important to him he, he just had it off the top of his head yeah 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 it, it's fundamental <clears throat> and there's other elements like wellboard control wellboard stability so it's not as simple as that but those are the two physical quantities that i always pull out as the typical things that prevent you from doing it or, or as a quick, a quick selector for physics, mechanical physics versus, um, versus millimeter wave physics versus other type of physics, right? Um, so, so we believe this way of doing drilling is fundamentally novel. You know, the, the, the way the drilling vaporizing rock with energy is not new. People have been doing this with lasers and microwaves for a long time, but piecing together all of the, all of the bits of the system uh, which was the contribution of MIT. MIT was the, the first to actually come out there and say, hey, if you combine these, 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 and that together, here's what you have as a system. That's what I took a look at and said, whoa, this is very interesting. And I understand drilling quite well. You know, I work in oil and gas and we use to develop drilling systems. So I'm not naive to what it takes to drill. And this is what we're not doing. It's not easy. But all of a sudden you have a window that cracks open where you see a path. And, and that's what we pursue. We see a path forward. And our job is to try to make it work because if it works, the world changes. That's awesome. And, and I, I like, I like how you've talked about this so far where, you know, you guys have a, it's a novel attack on the problem and, you know, you, you've actually thought through like, wow, okay, this is actually a pathway to geothermal becoming an actual energy source. It's not like, oh, we don't know. We're just going to try it. It's like, here's like a very real pathway you know, to get there, right. To, to open the door, so to speak. Um, I'm I'm curious, how deep do we go generally? I I, I know this is this is a novice question, but uh, how deep do we go now generally for petroleum drilling, and how do you, do we need to get to make geothermal work? So drilling for oil and gas, it barely takes place below three kilometers. It all okay. happens to be before that because most oil and gas more than 90% of oil and gas is actually in sedimentary basin. Sedimentary basin is the bit that we actually live on. It's where the aquifers are, where the oil and gas is, where the water is. Below that, you have the basement or the lead to the hard coconut shell, which is the lithosphere. So you barely, you, you hardly ever need to go there. Now, some places you are actually standing on it. They don't have sedimentary overburden, you know, places that have hard basaltic or granitic rock on the surface. So, so the, the, the location of the basement varies, but typically oil and gas does, that never happens, typically does not happen much below three kilometers. There's exceptions. There's oil reservoirs that are deeper than that, certainly. And people, and I'm talking about vertical depth, you know, uh, so you will hear about uh, wells that are 10 kilometers deep, but they're not really 10 kilometers deep. They are two kilometers deep, extending eight kilometers to the side, which is quite impressive to do as well. But, but that's where we are. Now, as humans, we've drilled at almost 13 kilometers deep hole in Russia. 
You know, it took 20 years to drill, but that is the world record, I believe. That is impressive. Um, and in Germany, they drill a 9.1-kilometer hole in Bavaria, Bavaria um, which is also quite impressive. Now, these things are not – these things are science experiments more than anything else, but we can actually do that. Look, what we're trying to do is to make deep drilling in the 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 15, 20, up to 20 kilometers, mainstream. It doesn't mean you need to go 20 kilometers every time, but it means that you can get there if you need to. So let me make two comments about how deep and how hot, right? Because those two, those two things tend to go hand in hand. But there's a lot of discussion about that. I believe that hotter geothermal is better geothermal. That's just physics again. You know, the more temperature you have, the more energy you have, yeah. period. So the hotter your geothermal, the more energy you have, to the point that water wells can look like oil wells in terms of the power output, right? And that's, that's significant. How hot then? To me, 300 to 500 degrees centigrade is sweet. It's a beautiful spot. Why that? Well, because most power plants in the world actually operate in that range. Nice. So if you can get to those temperatures, you can feed power plants with clean geothermal steam. Imagine the speed of transitioning energy from dirty to clean if you can actually repower power plants, right? Again, why not more than 500? Because there's not a lot more below beyond 500, right? Not 600, probably not a lot of return on the investment. Why not below? Because your power density starts to be quite low, right? So, so you're leaving too much um, opportunity on the table. So three to 500 degrees C is really the sweet spot. Now, how deep? Well, that's just a direct result of where you are in the world. If you're in Iceland, the 300 to 500 just happens to be within the first three to five kilometers, right? So that's as deep as you drill. If you are in the United States, in the West Coast, maybe five, six kilometers. If you are in the eastern side of the United States, like New York, Midwest, well, you have to go a little bit deep because it's not a geothermically great. You have to go maybe twice as deep. So that's where the depth comes in. Hotter geothermal is better geothermal, but deeper geothermal is more global geothermal. It just means you can do it in more places. By the time you get to 20, 95% plus of humanity can have geothermal, unlimited geothermal energy. So that's our specification. We're developing a drilling system for up to 20, up to 500. Below that also works, but that is the upper specification. Gotcha. So so once you get there, we can we can pretty much serve everyone's energy needs for the rest of time. Pretty without, much without anything else. That's, that's super interesting. Uh, is are are there? High, I'm assuming there's high capital cost up front, but I'm assuming those dissipate pretty quickly once you've got the the well drilled. If I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, but once you've done the drilling and you get things set up, I'm assuming the costs are are much lower than like wind, where you've got to replace like transmissions and turbines and things like that. Um, what does that look like? Yeah. Yeah, so, so we, we believe we can get to uh, LCOE, so levelized cost of energy, in the 10 to $30 per megawatt hour, or one to three cents per kilowatt hour. Um, this is competitive, or even outcompetes wind and solar in many places. The key to that, the key to that is there's three things that really influence that price, right? And these are really the things we need to focus on. The first one, of course, is drilling. Drilling deep wells, is exponentially more expensive. You know, uh, gotcha. a, a well that's twice as deep will cost you four to five times more. And a well that's four times as deep will cost you, you know, 
10 to 20 times more. So it becomes incre incredibly expensive the deeper you go. So that's number one. If you change trailing costs to vary linearly with that as opposed to exponentially with that, you have to tax to a great extent the first cost driver. That's one that we're doing. And to attack that cost driver, it's not about drilling faster. It's about not losing as much time. The reason drilling deep costs so much is that you spend all your time drilling the pipe in and out of the hole to replace drill bits rather than drilling, right? <laughs> so if you can actually do something to do that, you're already a huge part of the way there. So that's the first one. The second cost driver is the power plant. The power plants are expensive. They're low risk. You know, people, you can beat a power plant and you get it built and permanent in, in three, five, seven years in some cases. But it's expensive. Building power plants is expensive. Now, if you repurpose power plants, they've already built. There's 10,000 of them actually looking for a business case to survive in the next 20, 30 years as we, as we transition out of fossil fuels. They're just scrambling to see what they do with them. What a beautiful opportunity <laughs> if you can just save them and repower them. So that will drive the cost tremendously down. The third one has to do with how much heat you can actually put out of the ground. We're talking about what? Rock is an insulator, it's a thermal insulator. So pulling heat out of the rock is not easy. Rock holds a lot of heat, but it doesn't want to give it to you. So you actually have to increase the contact area with the rock or increase permeability to pull the heat out of the rock. So that's actually not an expensive operation, not compared to drilling and building power. plant. It's still, you're talking about billions of dollars, but not tens of millions of dollars. That is just about getting the performance and the contact area. And you'll hear th things like enhanced geothermal systems, fracturing, these things are going to be important to pull the heat out of the rock at the rate that it makes sense to repower civilization. Got it. Got it. That That's super, super interesting. And I, I'm curious, how how far off do you feel you guys are from getting, you know, prototypes like in the ground and, and using them to drill and, and getting like uh, and starting that process? Yeah, so we, let's see, the, the effort started in 2007. Um, the company started in 2018. So all that time between 07 and 18 was very academic. It was MIT working on the foundation of science. Very important process. You know, you cannot really shortcut that. Right. Um, in 2000, 2018 to now, we basically ported the technology from the university lab into a national lab and we're operating at 10 times the power level. You know, so 10 kilowatts in MIT, 100 kilowatts plus at the national lab level. That allows us to do deeper holes, faster holes, and explore the drilling process more extensively. But that's still in the lab. We're still talking about meters to tens of meters holes. Now, to get out of the lab and to get into the 100 meter, one kilometer plus, you actually have to now yield uh, deployable system. You need to package the technology for field operation. And that's what we're doing now. We are uh, taking all of those components and ruggedizing them for a field operation, which is what we've done in summer. This is what we know how to do really well. Um, and, and that process will, will see us getting the first data point in the field in the next 18 to 24 months. You know, at that point, you start seeing the first 100 meter magnitude still far for geothermal, but quite an impressive achievement for taking the technology out of the lab. If you fast forward another 18, 24 to 36 months, you'll start see that, seeing that in the, 
in the one kilometer plus range. Nice. That starts now to be viable for geothermal. So by 2024-25, we should see the first extension of an existing borehole in the western side of the United States, where we take it from a bottom hole temperature of, say, 350 we see to maybe 500 and show that we can actually do something that today is impossible with conventional technology. So sounds like a lot of time, but actually that's pretty fast when it oh, yeah. comes to developing these very large industrial systems. So the second, the second part of this decade should see us in the field attempting first commercial deployments. And that probably looks like, hey, let's take a power plant in the Western continental divide and repower them by creating a geothermal field around it. Is there, is there something special about the Western Continental Divide that makes it a good place to set this up? Yeah. So you have to drill less deep to get to the temperatures, right? So, so it, it almost, yeah, so the minute you hit the Rockies and go west, uh, the heat sources near the surface are, are closer to the surface. So it's just a way to get to market with less effort and less capital expense. But again, we are designing a system that will be equally useful whether you're in the Western uh, divide or the Eastern divide. Right? It doesn't really matter. We, we want to do geothermal anywhere in the world, but to start, you start with the easy stuff first. Right? It just makes sense. I love that. I love that that plan. Have you faced any any challenges with? I, I get the sense that a lot of people that invest in technology solely invest in like apps and internet technology and and you know phones and things small like this have you faced challenges with doing something like in the real world where you know it's like a, it's a very hard technical challenge uh, but you've got a really good plan you've got a good attack on the problem that you know it's it's not like you're just rolling dice it's like well we do these things x y and z and then this will, will be successful but but have you had any challenges you know just talking to investors and and people like that who are used to like you can start a software company for a hundred thousand dollars but you can't transform the world's energy supply for 100k that's not quite achievable you bet yeah so we've raised 23 million dollars to date right that's in the course of three years so it's not a lot of money you know software companies yeah. raise a lot faster a lot more but it's not insignificant. So what I see is the world actually has investors willing to do this. That's cool. And there's not the majority of them, but those are very special people. Those will become incredibly good and powerful partners to the journey ahead. What they want to see, of course, is that your team is competent and can actually get this done. If anybody can get this done, is this team going to get done, right? So, so that's one. And two, is this worthwhile doing? It's going to be expensive and it's going to take time. And there's an opportunity cost to everything. If it succeeds, is it going to matter? And of course, when you talk about geothermal at the terawatt level with energy independence for every nation in the world, of course, it's going to be worthwhile. Yes. So in interestingly enough, I do fundraise all the time. I talk to hundreds of investors and my, my, I walk away with a small fraction, but those small fraction of investors willing to fund it are amazing human being and the best part is I could possibly wish for. That's awesome. That's awesome. You find the people who really understand like what you're, what it really means to, you know, to implement this kind of technology. Uh, I'm curious, have you encountered any, any federal regulations or I, I, I know, um, 
I think I actually found geothermal through Eli Dorado. Um, he's super up yeah. on it. Um, and he works on NEPA. I don't know if NEPA applies or there's other things. Are, are there regulations that you have to worry about and think about that are kind of onerous or you think should change? You bet. You bet. Yeah. So we, we've talked to Eli. Uh, he's a dear, dear uh, partner to us. And we have our own, our own internal lawyer uh, slash MBA who is an, uh, uh, well-versed on that aspect, right? In the United States, at least. It, it changes worldwide. But in the United States, what you find is that there is legislation, there's policy in place, but it's actually not very mature. So Got it, it tends to get in the way. Now, that originates from the historical way of doing geothermal, right? When you talk about geothermal, historically, it almost always means, if not always, it means hydrothermal systems, which means water is in place and you drill to get that water so if water is in place it means that water is connected to aquifers i see people and if you can get it out it, yes so so you gotta be careful right for good reason yeah but it is not worse than oil and gas drilling not worse than oil and gas drilling now the geothermal we're doing is quite different you don't drill for water you drill for heat and then you create a reservoir but geothermal is geothermal and you get bucketed in that frame my opinion is that Number one, we need to show it works. Number two, regulation will accommodate it because, as I said at the very beginning, I don't think there's any other option. And it's obvious, it's going to be increasingly obvious as we get into the 2030s and 40s that wind and solar are actually not transitioning energy at the rate we need it to. So it's going to clear the way. If you, if you want to put it really simple, if you treated geothermal the same way that you treated oil and gas, you're done. You're done from a regulatory perspective. Gotcha. Right? That's it. It's that simple. If you could bucket geothermal with oil and gas, for better or worse, you're done with the regulation landscape. Got it. Got it. This uh, this leads to a really good technical question. You said you're not drilling for water. That means you're you're using a refrigerant, uh, is what I'm guessing. It, or your your conductive material isn't isn't water, is what I'm guessing. And it's not air because air is a really good insulator. That's right. We put the water in. We don't drill for it, but once we've drilled and touched the rock, we put water in and get it back. Ah, that's interesting. Do you have to pump it or, or does the change in, uh, or does hot water just Entry. rise? Okay. It does rise, it does rise, right? So there's people, you'll hear people talk about a thermosiphon effect, which is the way geysers work. So yes, it, you, you, it rises because of density difference, but you probably need to pump a little bit because you want the rate, the heat rate is what determines the economics of the development, which means you probably want to boost it a little bit with pumps, right? But you're talking about for every 100 megawatts of thermal energy, you probably need to spend 1% of so 1 megawatt with pumping, which is very, very low compared to everything else. So your penalty on, on, on moving water to the system is relatively low for all of the energy that you're getting. But water is a working fluid. So you have a good enough heat exchanger at the bottom to make it make it um, worthwhile to pump. Is 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 that correct? Yeah, you need a heat exchanger, and that can take one of many forms. You know, one the simplest form, uh, simplest technically, but also the lowest uh, return form is you put a monobore system, uh, so water goes in through the hole, outside the hole, in an annular section, 
and it comes through the insight in a pipe that you have in the middle. All right, so people have those concepts, and that will work. You know, the water will heat up, and you will pull heat from the ground, but you'll pull heat at the rate of you know, one to five, maybe ten at those temperatures, megawatts. Uh, you can get a better heat exchanger. So how do you do that? Well, you can make it deeper and more contact with the rock. That's one way. Or you can fracture, whether it's locally or extensively. You can actually create permeability in the rock and connect several ways through that rock matrix. Sometimes you don't even need to fracture. Sometimes the fractures are already in place. You just need to overcome the closing pressure on them and prop them open. Right. But that's how you create these heat exchangers. If you do this well, and believe me, entire nations are trying to do this. Entire nations see the value of these and are trying to do it, including the United States. If you, when you create a good heat exchanger, you are talking about pulling 50 megawatts of thermal energy per well, per 8-inch well bore, for 50 years. Right? Wow. Incredible. Wow. Incredible. So what type of changes in what type of delta t are you talking about how how hot of i guess water can you get out at the surface because you're going to lose some temperature to uh to as it's coming out the well yeah right? yeah the, the goal the goal is to in our case we want super critical water at the wellhead wow no or or close to, we can have it subcritical or slightly above supercritical, but that's what we want on the exit. Why is that? Well, because the supercritical phase is very low viscosity, so it flows very easily. You don't need as much pumping energy to put it through the system. It's also very high density, so its mass is high. It actually carries a lot of energy in its molecules. And three, it actually converts incredibly efficiently to electricity when you run into a turbine. So that's the Goldilocks. If you want to do, if you can do that, you have the best possible embodiment. So what does that mean? It means that down there at the bottom, it has to be more than supercritical. It probably needs to be, you know, 450, 500 degrees C. That's what we talk about those temperatures. Um, you also want to avoid phase changes on the way in and out. You know, when you allow water to change phase, like from liquid to gas. A lot of energy actually goes into the arrangement of the rearrangement of the molecules and not into the useful work you want to do. So you want to keep the pressures relatively high to keep water from changing phase. It will change from liquid to supercritical in the rock and then to steam in the turbine, which is outside the well. So that's the typical specification. You lose heat to, on the way up. Uh, you gain heat on the way down. You know, but all things considered, you're talking about 50 megawatts of thermal energy per well uh, by the time you're done with something like this. So if you can get supercritical vapor at the surface, which is really impressive, um, can you do cogeneration? Uh, like in an industrial setting, I could see, I mean, steam is a very useful product. Yeah. You can. Bad. You, you can, yes. So whether it's super critical or not, if you get water hot enough, you can do a lot of useful things with it, right? So let's talk about the super critical. So what would you do with that? Well, you pipe it. You, you don't vent it, right? You pipe it. It's always contained. You pipe it to a turbine, a super critical turbine. Right. That water 
a change space in the turbine from supercritical to saturated vapor. And it produces a lot of energy in that process, electric energy, uh, because it's moving the turbine. Well, then you take the saturated vapor and run it through a, a dry steam turbine, a second one, and you take a little bit more energy from that. Each of those is like 50, 40, 30% efficiency. So you're kind of squeezing the thermal energy and the enthalpy really out of the molecules and converting that to electricity. And as, as, the heat, as you continue to lose enthalpy or heat, then you start doing things like, hey, let's run it through an industrial process like drying pulp, uh, or let's run it through a residential or industrial heating system, right? So the beauty of this is that you can take it from a high point and cascade it down with all of these uses in between. And by the time you're done with it, it's lukewarm water. And then you can pump it back into the hole, get it hot, repeat the cycle. Really cool. At, uh, at my university, at NC State, we have these natural gas turbines. And we do exactly that. We, we use cogeneration to get an amazing efficiency of used energy. We, uh, they make steam, which is pumped through the buildings for heat. And uh, I took a, an elective where they... Um, they, they couldn't show us because of COVID, but we walked through like the act, the increase of thermal efficiency using cogeneration. And it, I was amazed. It was really, I mean, it, the difference between yeah. getting 50% used for electricity and then, okay, what else do we do with the steam versus, you know, using about 90% of the energy, which is released from the fuel from combustion. Right. So now there's that, now in this case, there's no fuel. It comes from the ground. Well, there is a fuel. It's the, the radioactive decay in the Earth's crust, right? That is a fuel. Right. But but it's there no matter what, whether we tap into it or not, right? So yes, that's 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 the idea. And and chances are that everybody listening to these, or the vast majority of people listening to these, are getting their energy from a thermal generation plant. There is steam involved in that cycle, because that's what we're building in the in the 20th century. So we're just basically saying, hey, let's just change the boilers, right? The, the right. problem is not the thermal plant. The problem is the boiler burning carbon. Just right. change that. Only that. Leave the, everything else in there. Yeah, that. we have free boilers. They're just very far away underground. <laughs> it's just hard to get to. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, Glenn, do you have any more questions for Carlos here? Hmm. Um, I, I'm kind of interested in, do you do... Do you put any effort into uh, insulation on the way up? Because, and or do you have two separate holes, one to put water down and one to bring water up? You, you, you do, you do put insulation. Uh, it makes things better, right? You don't always have to do it, but it makes things better, right? Because the more, the less energy you lose to the rock, the more energy you get to use for your power or industrial heating uses. Now, rock is a thermal insulator. So by design, you are already insulated quite well. You just can do a little bit better by doing fancy things. If it's really, really deep, you probably do want to put insulation, not all the way, only on the upper portions, because the places where you will lose the most energy is for the difference in temperature between the fluid and the rock is the highest. So if you're close to the surface, so the ground could be uh, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, and the water is super critical. So you will lose a lot of energy if you don't insulate. So you'll, you'll probably benefit tremendously from insulating the upper portions. Now, the deeper portions, you don't need to insulate. 
because the difference in temperature is not that dramatic. But it, it makes things better. Awesome. Awesome. Um, this is more of a, a will-like question, but overrated or underrated, um, the idea of having like a low energy society, which is a lot of what the green movement has been pushing like in, you know, when I was growing up, um, they're saying, you know, make sure you turn your lights off and make sure you turn off your tap when you're brushing your teeth. I, like, I understand we want to be efficient, but do you think we can just design our societies to be low energy or do you think we need really high power capabilities of producing energy for the future? I think I think we need a lot of energy to prosper. Right? I think it's just it goes hand in hand with quality of living and prosperity. Yes, we can always do better with efficiency, but the energy that we consume doesn't come from the typical places you think of, right? Uh, turning off lights, uh, doing things with your chargers for your phones, all those things help, but they help very little. The energy really is embodied in the world around you. So look around you, your clothes, your glasses, your iPhone, your computer screen, your bed, everything, you know, your floors, the wood, the wall, everything, everything is possible because of the amount, the tremendous amount of energy available to the civilization. You make it more energy efficient, it helps, but if you want to drastically reduce energy use, it means all of those things go away, all of them, all of them. There's no materials to build with. There's no uh, transportation methods to use. There's no food, right? The food to eat. Have you ever stopped to think about what's in front of you on your plate? Yeah, it's not just potatoes. It's a hundred different things that come from all over the world. So I don't believe that we will see a lower energy use uh, as, a, as, a, as a civilization going forward. I think it goes hand in hand with prosperity and it's just the evolution of the human species, right? If, if we're not doing that, if we're not consuming more energy, it's because we're not prospering. It is because Mother Nature hit us in the head and we had to back off and we basically evolved the civilization. So that is my view. I very strongly believe in it. I think energy is prosperity, right? And, and if, you, if you want to use less energy, it, it's equal to saying you're going to be less prosperous, period. Definitely. And, and providing cheap energy that's that's clean and we can use forever i mean this is it's super important it's super important for the future of humanity definitely well carlos uh thank you so much for coming on where should we send people where would you uh, where should people check out your work and if people want to learn about more about geothermal where should they go yeah so so our work Energy. Q-U-A-I-S-E, that's the name of the company, dot energy. Um, we have a little bit in there, but that's the entry point uh, for what we're doing. Um, if you want to know more about geothermal, I think a very good reference is Pivot 2021. You know, so Jamie Beard, Google that name, J-A-N-I-E, Beard, B-E-A-R-D. She is an amazing champion for geothermal. 
And she's put these conferences over time where people from all over the world and all backgrounds talk about geothermal. There's a whole series, weeks of videos on YouTube where you can start watching all aspects, technical, regulatory, policy, equality, energy transition, right? So I couldn't find, I couldn't point you to a better resource as a start than that, right? Pivot 2021, Jamie Beard, and Quasar Energy specifically for us. Awesome. I'll make sure everybody has a link to this in the description. Uh, well, Carlos, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks for your curiosity and um, I'm trying to elevate the voice of geothermal. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.